In early October of 2017, the White House hosted a press conference with military leaders. We'll be, we'll be looking into that over the next short period of time. For months, tension had been building with North Korea, and President Trump had warned of a massive military response if the country continued testing nuclear weapons. He was also expected to announce that the U.S. was pulling out of a nuclear deal with Iran. Recently, uh, we have had uh, challenges that we really should have taken care of a long time ago, like North Korea, Iran, Afghanistan, ISIS, and the revisionist powers that threaten our interests all around the world. Because of this, some folks were earnestly wondering, is the U.S. going to war? Later that day, the president posed for a photo op with military staff and their families, who'd all been invited to dinner at the White House. And it was there, in the state dining room, that the president said something, something that even by his standards was a bit strange. You guys know what this represents? Tell us, sir. Um, maybe it's the calm before the storm. The calm before the storm. What's the storm? Could be the calm, the calm before the storm. Right, and so the, the reporters who were there in true reportorial fashion were all like, what calm, what storm? <laughs> Adrian LaFrance, executive editor at The Atlantic. At the time, journalists were interpreting it as having to do potentially with Iran. What storm is the president? You'll find out. Yeah. A couple of weeks passed. Then, on an online forum, a user started to leave cryptic messages. Dozens of them over a few days. The forum was called 4chan, a gathering place for a range of groups associated with everything from conspiracy theories to the alt-right, where users can participate anonymously. One post predicted that Hillary Clinton would be imminently arrested. Others described a secret plan to rid the government of satanic worshippers. And then days later, this same account keeps posting and is using the term the calm before the storm. These 4chan posts, they started a conspiracy theory movement that swept the internet and then spilled out into the real world. In July, a 24-year-old man was charged in the shooting death of a reputed mob boss. Written on his hand in the courtroom were QAnon symbols. You can find them among the thousands at the president's rallies. Do you think there are a lot of other QAnon supporters here at this rally? Incredible amount. Yeah. We just I've walked by. Yeah. This seeped into the groundwater of Trump-era hyperpartisanship, with Q paraphernalia sold outside Trump rallies and appearing with disturbing regularity on his supporters. Of all of the things that anyone has ever posted to 4chan, it really is, you know, think of how many forgotten posts that were nonsensical never spawned like global conspiracy theory movements, but this one did. So the internet's weird. Today on the show, the QAnon conspiracy theory and why it's here to stay. I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. Adrienne LaFrance spoke directly to QAnon believers and wrote about the conspiracy theory's origins and its staying power for The Atlantic. So QAnon refers to the Anon or the anonymous poster who is sort of behind this entire theory. And so in the early days of QAnon, this person would talk about having Q clearance, very high level sort of government clearance with insider knowledge of military secrets. 
we don't know who Q is. It might be a single user or a group of people. Reporters haven't been able to figure that out. But ever since the first message on 4chan, the posts have kept coming. There have been more than 4,600 Q drops since Q started posting in 2017. The overarching worldview or the overarching belief system is that a group of high-profile Democrats and other powerful figures in business and in Hollywood are working together in secret um, and running this global child sex ring. Um, And that, and this is the key part, that President Trump is secretly working to thwart them. And eventually they say he will succeed. And when sort of that judgment comes down, on the other side of it is a great awakening for society. Q claims to be someone who works for the government, who's helping President Trump root out some kind of deep state cabal. The posts are meant to coordinate Trump's supporters by allowing them to decipher the code and figure out the quote-unquote truth. All conspiracy theories entail some sort of secret powerful forces working against ordinary people or lying to ordinary people. QAnon is different because for the first time, the ordinary people have a role within the conspiracy theory where they feel like they're able to fight back. So there's a lot to unpack there. But what is up with this obsession with the idea of a child sex ring? Well, you know, if you talk to what I call true believers, the people who are really invested in Q, I think you find that they're deeply earnest in their beliefs. And it's sort of like, if there is even a remote possibility that one child could be in harm's way, why wouldn't you do all that you can to make sure to fight for that child's well-being? And so mm. I can see how it's it's almost like a defensive mechanism to protect the conspiracy theory itself, to say like, this isn't just about the moon landing, this is about children. And so it, it sort of like raises the stakes, I think, um, and if you look way, way, way back, like seriously, all the way to the Crusades like or the Salem witch trials centuries later, like there has long been a preoccupation in conspiracism with child sex abuse. And so it really, it does draw on ancient preoccupations in the realm of conspiracy theory. So it's really hard to resist. And you know, of course, we all care about children's well-being. Of course, we all don't want them to undergo those kinds of terrible um, situations. And so, of course, you're going to dive into this QAnon conspiracy theory headfirst. Right. And I think it is to to the believers, I think it's sort of a legitimizing force. And so they can say, look at the Catholic Church, look at Epstein, look at these cases where we have, in fact, evidence that horrible things were done to children. And that then becomes the bridge from reality to conspiracy that is sort of like an anchor in a way to the people who believe. And I kind of get a sense that there's a little bit of religious undertone to this. Is is that correct? That's certainly my interpretation. And it's not something I recognized until I really deeply reported it. Um, but the more I talk to people who believed, the more, you know, like online, when you encounter Q followers, the vibe is often or it can be perceived as sort of hostile as as with so many things on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, and so I sort of expected when I met people in person that it would be similar, but it really wasn't. And in fact, it, it was really pronounced to me this sort of spiritual aspect that I, I didn't quite discern from online spaces, but in person really like the sense of like serenity and spirituality and just total 
blind faith. And so it's become really clear to me that this isn't just a conspiracy theory and there really is this added layer of spirituality. Can you give me an example of one of these conversations and sort of how it felt religious? So if you look at just the way that people orient themselves around this conspiracy theory, there are these cue drops that are sort of like a foundational text to be interpreted. And you can imagine that in parallel to like a religious text. And then there is this mysterious figure Q that for whom there is this really strong reverence and devotion. And that has a religious aspect to it. But then there's also the larger worldview, which is very, I mean, if you look at the narrative, this idea that there is a great awakening on the horizon and on the other side of it is a sort of like um, rapture, societal um, rapture. And that, you know, it, it has a lot in common with other religions or worldviews that are preoccupied with end times. So you see a ton of that embedded in Q. Um, and then in terms of when I talk to people who are true believers, I asked probably every person I talked to why they kept believing when things had been so clearly proved false, like Hillary Clinton was never arrested. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> why do you believe this random anonymous person on the internet? And what they said time and time again was that this is so much bigger than Q. And I even asked one gentleman, you know, what what would you do if tomorrow whoever is posting as Q revealed themselves to be just like someone participating in a hoax? And and they themselves said like, sorry, everyone, like, just kidding. And he was like completely unfazed and just said, it doesn't matter who Q is. And this was also interesting because I was really, I wanted to know who Q was and people didn't seem to care. And so it clicked into place for me that this isn't about Q. It's about an existing worldview and Q sort of just clicking into place for people who already sort of were craving this narrative or already believed in sort of uh, specifically this preoccupation with the apocalypse. If QAnon's claims seem outlandish, Adrian says she thinks the ways most people find the theory are pretty banal. One woman told me, I was looking for ways to get my car windows really clean. So she was like looking on YouTube for like sparkling clean car windows. And then like the algorithm was like, now check out QAnon. Um, Similarly, another woman I talked to encountered it on Facebook. When I was talking to her, this was outside of a Trump rally in, in Toledo in January, and her friend was standing there and he was sort of like commenting on how he watched her become obsessed with this thing and doubted it. And she kept being like, just look into it, just look into it. And so in that case, Hmm. he finally listened to her and then he in turn became obsessed. And so it's this combination of like Facebook, YouTube, word of mouth. It's hard to know exactly how many people subscribe to QAnon. But by every conventional metric, social media activity, number of posts, the theory seems to be gaining ground. According to Media Matters, a nonprofit media watchdog, 14 candidates for Congress who've secured a spot on the ballot in November have either endorsed or given credence to QAnon at some point. My belief is that it's just going to keep growing and maybe it'll morph into some other conspiracy theory. But given that it reflects this much larger sort of end times obsessed worldview, And given that it's true believers say that it doesn't actually matter if Q is him or herself real, I don't understand, honestly, how it would be stopped without just like tearing down the internet and starting from scratch, which sounds both cynical and improbable. So I think we're stuck with Q for a while. 
So barring, you know, shutting down the internet and starting over, what can be done to slow QAnon's growth? Some social media platforms are trying a few ideas of their own. That's after the break. This is Reset. From the beginning, QAnon believers have gathered outside of 4chan on mainstream social media websites like Facebook and Twitter. They post using hashtags like hashtag the Great Awakening, hashtag we are the news now, and hashtag wake up America. And they've uploaded videos of themselves taking the QAnon oath. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It's a take on the oath of office that U.S. politicians usually take. But there's a twist at the end. The QAnon slogan. Where we go one, we go all. Where we go one, we go all. Where we go one, we go all. So help me God, where we go one, we go all. Twitter, especially, has been used by Trump and his staff to encourage the conspiracy. Trump's own Twitter account has retweeted pro-QAnon tweets dozens of times. Although, outside of retweets, the president hasn't formally acknowledged the conspiracy theory. Casey Newton is a Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. He says QAnon believers don't just use mainstream social media platforms to talk to one another but also to increasingly harass people who are complaining about it or pointing out that it's not true or that it's a ridiculous hoax. And we've seen several times now um, celebrities and other big users uh, become targets of Q um, as people try to link them to a bunch of terrible crimes that have never happened. So as they have been in so many other cases, the social networks have been vectors of abuse. And from what I understand, some social media websites are really trying to actually address this in some way, shape or form. And Twitter is a big one. So what's Twitter's plan to deal with QAnon content as we understand it right now? So um, this month, Twitter announced that it was banning 7,000 accounts that were related to the QAnon movement. uh, And it put restrictions on 150,000 more. So that typically means that they won't show up in search results, they won't be suggested as accounts to follow. Um, And it was the the biggest action we've seen so far from a a big social network against Q. Um, And we have also been told that Facebook is planning on taking its own measures against Q uh, sometime soon. So I, I can't help but wonder, why is Twitter cracking down on this now? It's not exactly clear to me why. I will say that Twitter has taken a more aggressive stance in its content moderation policies this year than it has in the past. There have been multiple high-profile cases of uh, users being harassed by Q adherents. Chrissy Teigen, the uh, model and cookbook author, um, went through this in July. The group linked her without any evidence to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. They even began flooding accounts of her friends and their businesses. And it sort of brought new attention to, you know, what people with millions of followers sometimes have to deal with. So there's some some thought that that might have accelerated Twitter's time frame. But I also think that they probably just noticed a lot of abuse happening on the network that was related to Q and, and started working on this. So what exactly do we mean by abuse here? You mentioned Chrissy Teigen as an example. 
Yeah. So, you know, imagine you're, you've got a million Twitter followers and you're tweeting about the things you normally tweet about. And then every time you look in your mentions, people are saying, hey, like, why are you eating babies? Like, you need to knock it off, right? Like, that's the sort of thing that people have been going through on these social networks as a result of Q. And it has actually gone beyond the celebrities. In some cases, the most rabid adherents are finding the family members of these people on other social mm-hmm. networks and then uh, swarming them. Um, so kind of uh, all ganging up on not just the the person who they are baselessly being accused of crimes, but also finding their friends and family and harassing them on social networks as well. So sort of once, you know, any large uh, online hate movement has you in its sights, uh, like the, the harassment is just going to find you in a hundred different ways. So Twitter has, has announced this plan. They, they're cracking down. Do you think this approach will work? I think it will probably do some good. I think the question, as always, is how do you enforce this? One of the aspects of Twitter's new policy is that they're not allowing coordinated behavior. So they're not allowing Mm. large groups of people to go after a a Chrissy Teigen or someone else. The problem is they haven't defined what coordination means. Does that mean that you can't start a DM group with 10 other people and say, let's go harass Chrissy Teigen? Or does it mean something else? Twitter hasn't said. And so something I find a lot in reporting on content policy is companies will take some stand that looks good and everyone applauds them and they get a bunch of retweets for changing their policy. But they sort of leave for later the question of how they are going to enforce it. And often what we find is that they're not enforcing the change very well at all. And sometimes one of the reasons is that they haven't define their terms. So we're hoping that Twitter offers some more clarity on how it actually plans to enforce this policy beyond just sort of saying, you know, QAnon is bad and we're going to ban your account if you do certain things. Okay. There are now folks on the ballot in November or in the upcoming elections who said that they believe the conspiracy or have linked themselves to this conspiracy in some ways. How does that complicate these moderation efforts? So this is a complete nightmare, right? So it's like you have people on your service who are being uh, harassed and their friends and family are being harassed and doxxed and threatened and all of that. Um, And then some of the people who believe the theory are also running for Congress. And some of them are running in districts where they're highly likely to win. Stunning upset in Colorado. A five-term Republican congressman has conceded in the GOP primary against his far-right challenger, Representative Scott Tipton was defeated by Lauren Boebert, has faced intense criticism over comments she made where she appeared to sympathize with what's known as QAnon. It's a pro-Trump, deep state conspiracy theory. And so it seems probable that next year we will have QAnon theories banned on the big social networks and we will have members of Congress, I don't know, spreading them on radio interviews. And then the question of what becomes allowed and what becomes not allowed becomes much more difficult, right? What if Mm. a Congress member uh, gives a speech about Q on the floor of Congress? Are we going to be prohibited from tweeting that we enjoyed the speech and thought it was great? Um, So these are really hard questions. Uh, I think, you know, Twitter is probably thinking about what it's going to do has definitely not said, uh, other than currently candidates for political office are not going to fall under this new policy. So, you know, if you're, uh, I don't know, the Republican nominee for Congress in Florida, and you want to say that QAnon is real, Twitter so far isn't going to ban you. But, you know, the way I think about that is that is a problem for social networks, but it is not their problem to solve, really, right? If we want to root out 
these sort of, you know, lunatic harassment groups. We need to be able to do it in a way that goes beyond just designing and enforcing uh, a content policy for Twitter and Facebook. Casey Newton is the Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. What you've heard from Casey and Adrian today is that QAnon isn't going anywhere. But to be clear, conspiracy theories aren't new, and many of the ones QAnon followers talk about have been around for a while. So it's worth thinking about why this theory has gotten so much traction, especially during the pandemic. I think the thing to remember is that movements like these, they often emerge when things, government, society, feel especially unstable. People want a way to make sense of the world, a distraction, and a way to fight back, all in one. And for some people, QAnon is that thing. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zuemros, but you don't have to say it that way. If you like what you heard, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you haven't already, subscribe to The Pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. Will Reed and Skylar Swenson produced the show. Amy Drovsdoska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. And we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Friday. Later, nerds.